know that it could be concerning or scary because you can hear my voice and you're like, better not get that close to this guy. But I would suggest that you get close enough to be able to try to read this because it's really going to help you. So the goal tonight is to go from chapter 15 through chapter 19. And it is rather technical. I mean, if you're new to Scripture, certainly some people probably think all of Scripture looks like this. It's not. However, tonight, it is one of those places where it is rather technical. And what I mean by that is there are a lot of lists. There are a lot of lists for a very good reason. And primarily the reason, and well, here, let's do this. We should just pray before we even start, since you guys have taken the time, which I think is awesome. <coughs> Let me do the same. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I want to thank you for the privilege tonight of being able to turn our hearts to you, expecting you to do great and glorious things. We commit this night to you and pray, God, that you would really speak to us, that you would minister profoundly, that we could hear your voice. And Lord Jesus, you said that you come in the volume of the book, not just portions, but all of it. And I want to see you in it. So Jesus, reveal yourself in our text tonight. Help us to see you for who you really are. And I thank you for the privilege of being able to say yes to you another night. Lord, please let your scripture burst open and come alive for us. May we have so much fun in your word tonight. May we be gloriously surprised. And Lord, I do pray that you would immerse me in your spirit, that you would be seen, that you would come upon me, that you would do the work so that we could see you tonight here. So we commit this to you and we thank you, Lord. Redeem every second, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Naomi would love to bring one to you. And if you get that Bible or have your Bible, open it up to Joshua chapter 15. Joshua is the sixth book of the Bible. It's the first book beyond the Torah or the Pentateuch. Now let me endeavor to explain to you what we may be looking at from chapters 15 through 19 tonight. Israel has wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. As Israel has wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, only two people from that original generation have made it into the promised land. The leader, his name is Joshua. And if you will, it seems to be a commander of an army, a man named Caleb. Joshua is from the tribe of Ephraim. He's one of the sons of Joseph. Caleb is from the tribe of of, uh, Judah. (coughs) Joshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus. Most of us are aware of that. And yet, Jesus will come from the tribe of Judah. Before they entered into the promised land, They were east of the Jordan River, in the today what is called Jordan. When that land was conquered, 
primarily the, the land of two very large giant kings, Sihon and Og. Two and a half of those tribes, a half because there seemed to be some form of civil war in the, in the tribe of Manasseh, the other son of Joseph. Two and a half of the tribes just said, can we have this land? We're shepherds, it's green, it seems to make sense. So they did. But Moses made this deal with them. You're not getting out of fighting just because you get this land. Clearly, if we're going to cross the Jordan, there are going to be battles. Or you're going to just have to lead us into battle. But if really what you want is the land and you're not just trying to stay out of a fight, well, then come fight with us. And when basically all of the major battles are done, you can go back to your land. And he calls their bluff and they say, okay. So they go to fight. So two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, wind up inheriting the land on the east side. Now on the west side, that's the area that God had ultimately ordained for them, there are now nine and a half tribes left of twelve. Of those nine and a half tribes, the major battles, for the most part, for the moment, have seemed to have been fought, though there's much ground still to gain. And what we'll find is, in the next couple chapters, is just the same way that two and a half tribes went to claim the land on the east side, two and a half of those nine and a half tribes are going to claim the, the land on the west side. And then the other seven tribes don't even show up to get the land. They have to be called in and by a lot granted land, which tells you a little bit about the condition already of the nation. There was fight, and there was clearly fight in Caleb. He's 85, and he said, hey, I saw a land 40. Remember this, Joshua? <coughs> 45 years ago, we saw a land, and I wanted it. Well, now I'm 85, but I'm still going to go get the land. And Joshua, or, and, and Joshua says, go ahead, Caleb, and he does. The tribe of Judah seems to be, what we'll see here, the most ready-to-fight tribe. And they will seem to get a tremendous amount of land. If you take a look at one of these maps... And that's a really good one, by the way. Notice how much land Judah gets. See how Simeon's kind of a polka dot right in the middle of it? They'll have to put Simeon in there because Judah has conquered so much land, there's not enough people to man it. So they're going to take another tribe and stick it in the middle of it just to give them some space, just to be able to occupy the land. But the two and a half tribes on the north, I'm sorry, on the east side, I remind you, that was Reuben and Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh, now, on the west side, those two and a half tribes happen to be, by the way, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Ephraim, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, if you will, Judah and Joseph's sons. So really what you have, in essence, in the next two chapters, 15 and 16, is the land being broken up to the guys who showed up to get it. That's, again, the two and a half tribes. And then chapters 17, 18, and 19, then, really are those other seven tribes getting their land. Now, we can easily say this is a really technical area. And since it's our first time through the entire Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, certainly we don't need to dig into some of the deeper things about some of their meanings, although we'll dig into a few of them just for fun. Because we're going to be reading hundreds of names here, for which it's, it'll be easy for your brains just to explode out of your head. So what in the world do we expect to get from this? Well, one thing is for sure. God has a specific place for every one of you. And as much as you might say, I want to be here, or I want to be there, God knows where he wants you, and he puts you in the place where you can be the most fruitful. I love the fact that God knows where you're supposed to be. God knows where I'm supposed to be. I may not always know where I'm supposed to be, but God does. 
And God has is God is a very orderly God. He's a God of order. He isn't just saying, all right, you guys run over here and you do this and you guys run over here and that would be great. Just work it out yourselves. God is very organized and he knows exactly what he's doing. But he also shows us that those are really who have that fight in them, that are desirous to, to tote the banner of the name of the Lord. I'm not talking about blowing yourself up or shooting people. What I'm talking about is being bold about the name of the Lord that God promises to grant land to. He had already said that. He says, every place that the sole of your foot will walk, I've granted to you. Which, by the way, tells us that God will grant you land as long as you, or he'll give you the land as long as you're willing to walk with him. Well, there's the problem. So, you ready to dig in? Yes, I can see it in your faces even if you're not saying it. Here we go. So this was the lot for the tribe of the children of Judah according to their families. The border of Edom at the wilderness of Zin southward was the extreme southern boundary. And their southern border began at the shore of the Salt Sea, that's the Dead Sea that faces southward. Then it went to the southern side of the ascent of Ahabim. Now, that means, by the way, the ascent of scorpions. I don't know about you, but that's not necessarily land real estate I want to get, but just the same that comes with the property. Passed along to Zin, ascended to the south side of Kadesh Barnea, passed along to Hizron, and went up to Adar, and then went up to Karka'ah. From there it passed toward Asmon, and then went to the brook of Egypt, and the border that ended at the sea, that's the Mediterranean Sea. This shall be your southern border, the eastern border shall be your salt sea, that's the Dead Sea, and as far as the mouth of the Jordan, to the northern tip of the Dead Sea. And the border of the northern quarter began at the Bay of the Sea and at the mouth of the Jordan. And the border went up to Beth Hogla. Isn't that a beautiful name? Hogla, especially if you're Jewish. Well, Hogla, by the way, means partridge. So, if you will, people that belonged to that were part of the partridge family. And they passed north to Beth Araba, which means the house of the desert. And the border went up to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. <coughs> Excuse me. Bohan, by the way, means thumb. Who names their son Thumb? Well, you can ask Dickens, right? Wasn't that one of the... I uh, can't remember the family, not from Scrooge. Uh, anyways. It wasn't the Tom Thumb. Then the border went up from Debir to the Valley of Achor. Remember Achor, like Achan, means trouble. So, boy, this guy's getting the, the, the ascent of the scorpions, the Valley of Trouble. And it turned towards Gilgal, which is where they've been. That's the place of consecration. I love that that lands in the land of Judah, which is at the ascent of Adumim, which means the ascent of the red one, or ruddy one, which is on the south side of the valley. The border continued toward the waters of Es Shemesh, the fountains of the sun, and ended at Enrogel, the fountain of the floor. And the border went up by the valley of the son of Hanom. Hinnom, by the way, means hell or lamentation. To the southern slope of the Jebusite city, which is Jerusalem. This is important to note. Jerusalem as we know it today, and it is important to recognize this, Jerusalem really wasn't fully conquered until a certain king takes the throne we know as David. When David takes the throne, it is important to recognize that Jerusalem, kind of as we know it, is shaped like a paintbrush. The area that is square we might call the old city. The southern area that would be the handle to this day is called the city of David. So when someone says the city of David, 
Well, the city that belonged to David would be Bethlehem, of course, where he'd come from. But the city of David, as he had conquered it, would be first and foremost that paintbrush handle. And it is important to note that that becomes the border because the handle becomes that of Judah, but the city proper actually belongs to Benjamin, for what it's worth. Now, that valley, they, because it's a handle, on both sides there are valleys. On one side, that is the valley of Hinnom, or the valley of hell, or a lamentation. It is important to note that is where women used to sacrifice their children to the god of pleasure, Molech. It is also where Judas hangs himself. So, a really lovely place. There is a really lovely hotel that overlooks that lovely valley you can stay at. Uh, we've stayed there before. Pretty rotten place. And the, the hotel is great. Valley, who really wants to see that? On the other side of that valley, you know that valley a little bit more because that's the Kidron Valley. That's the eastern side. The Kidron Valley means dark valley. And it was dark because it was the sewer system and it was where the blood of the lambs, when they were slaughtered during Passover, would flow into the, the in essence, would be part of their sewer system, would flow then into their repository. And why is that important? Because on the other side of that valley is the Mount of Olives. And the Lamb of God, Jesus himself, walks through that valley on his way to actually his trials and then will be crucified outside of the city. So it would be interesting to think the Lamb of God is walking through, if you will, a river of blood on his way. Blood of the lambs of the Passover as the Lamb of God was about to be sacrificed himself for what that's worth. In verse 8 again, the border went up to the valley of the son of Hinnom by the southern slope of the Jebusite city, so the southern slope of Jerusalem. The border went up to the top of the mountain that lies at the valley of Hinnom westward, which is at the end of the valley of Rephaim northward. And the border went around to the hill of the fountain of the water of Nephtoah. If I read this quickly, I think you'll appreciate it, but I do want to make sure we get at least some points. And extended to the cities of Mount Ephron, which means fawn-like. So those of you who remember high school musical, Zach Ephron, Ephron means fawn-like or like a deer. There you go. Uh, the border went to Baala, which means mistress. We're going to see that mentioned a handful of times, which is Kirath Yirim, the city of forests. And the border turned westward to, from Baala to uh, Mount Seir, which means shaggy, as in shaggy as in uh, Scooby's friend, passing along the side of Mount Yirim on the north, which is Cheselon. And it went down to Beth Shemesh and passed down to Timna. And the border then went to the side of Ekron, <coughs> excuse me, northward. Then the border went around to Shikron, which means drunkenness. Who names a place that? Passed along to Mount Baala, remember that means mistress, and extended to Yavniel. And the border ended at the sea. And again, that's the Great Sea, the western border, the coastline of the Great Sea. This is the boundary of the children of Judah all around according to their families. Now, he's going to get into some specifics. And what he's going to do, by the way, as we're going to start to see here in a moment, is that God's going to mention a whole bunch of cities. And traditionally, what seemed to happen is, is that the battle was that you take on the big cities, and once you basically have conquered the big city, then you actually take on the smaller things that rely on that city. It seemed to me that Paul did the same thing, by the way, that when Paul went on and evangelized, it seemed like he went and hit the big cities and tried to set up shop there and build a church there so that if a church could be built in that city, it could reach to all of its suburban communities as well. I mean, if you think about it, hitting Thessalonica, or I should say hitting Philippi and then Thessalonica, trying to get into Athens and then to Corinth and then to Ephesus, these are big cities. As a matter of fact, when he gets into Ephesus, he'll spend three years there. It's important to note 
that from there people will accuse him. He'll say that all of Asia, that's the western coast of Turkey, Asia Minor, all of it has heard the word of God because this guy set up shop in Asia. Now, the only reason I say this, think about us. Here we are, we're in London. And imagine what happens as God builds this. As God builds this from the ground up and builds people that are dedicated to him, how that is going to impact, in our case, not just the surrounding communities, but the world. The whole world lives in London. Just think about what that's going to mean a decade from now. How there will be people that will have churches planted all over the world and they'll remember how they sat down with Daniel or sat down with Bruno or sat down with Hugo or sat down with one of the ladies and went, I remember when things were rough. But then Deborah said to me, you wouldn't have even felt bad about this not that long ago. How beautiful when you realize what God's going to use you to touch the rest of the world. Well, so there it is. <coughs> it is important now, and we get this little story about, a, about um, this, this um, excuse me, about Caleb. Remember how Caleb said, give me the land, I'm 85, I want to take it on. Well, Caleb, uh, the son of Yephunneh, he says he gave a share to the children of Judah according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kirath Arba. Arba, by the way, if you're counting, in Hebrew is number four. So if you say fantastic four, you're assuming it's fantastic Arba, which is Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak. Anak, remember, was sort of this was one of the giants. His name literally, this will strike fair, means neck. Doesn't that just scare you? The neck. Well, there you go. Caleb drew out the sons of Anak, and there were these three, at least here. Shishai, which means noble. Achinam, which means my brother is a gift. And Talmai, which means rigid or furrowed, the children of Anak. And he went up from there in the inhabitants of Debir. Formerly Debir was Kir Sefer, which, by the way, interesting enough, means the city of the book. And Caleb says, he said, He who attacks Kir Sefer and takes it, to him I will give Achtha, which means ankle chain, like an anklet, my daughter as wife. So Othniel, which means Lion of God, the son of Kenaz, which means hunter, the brother of Caleb took it and he gave it to Achsa, his daughter, as wife. Get this. This, by the way, will be the way that we see the book of Judges kicked off. The first judge, I mean, if I were to say, tell me the names of some judges from the book of Judges. You might be able to give me Samson. You might be able to give me Gideon. Maybe if you're a little up on it, you might give me someone like Jephthah or Deborah. Maybe even Barak, if you're kind of up on it, whether he's a judge, that's arguable. But does anyone know Othniel? Othniel was, according to this, this guy Caleb's brother. And what, what Caleb, now, I don't know about you, but apparently Achsa, little ankle chain gal, she must be something fine to look at for you to go and take on a city for it. And he's like, hey, so anyone who conquers that city, I'm going to give you my daughter. And so if she was kind of a scary looking character, I don't know how many guys would be bantering to take over the city. But of all of the people who do so, her uncle does so. And she winds up marrying her uncle. Now, I don't know about you, but as, I, but I, as, as Caleb, I'd kind of be like, really? You know, are you sure? You know, anyways, you get it. That's a different culture. Anyways. And she winds up marrying her uncle. His daughter marries his brother. Now, again, God's not saying this is great or anything like that. He's just listing history here. But it is important to note that, that it's the daughter of Caleb. And again, her name, Anklet. So, 
verse 18, it says, Now, so it was so that when she came to him, that she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. So she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? What do you wish? And she said, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land of the south, give me also then springs of water. Now, in verse 19, this is, by the way, look at what she's doing here. Because he has conquered the land. Now, remember, here's the thing. This guy has conquered the land. His brother, Lion of God, Othniel, has conquered the land. And because he's conquered the land, he already has ground. I mean, he has a whole city. But in a blessing to his daughter, he gives her some land. Which is an interesting thing. Does she really need it? It appears to me, if that's the case, then it sounds to me like Othniel didn't conquer the ground for himself. That Othniel went to go fight for his tribe, but not necessarily for himself. And I kind of like that about him. It's probably why he became a judge. Is that he was a guy that wasn't just going to help fight his own battle. He was going to look at the family around him and he was going to say, your battles are my battles too. Do you have people like that? That love you enough that are willing to go to battle for you when things are rough. You know, and let's face it, when somebody's battling at a time when you're not winning, chances are they're going to irritate the living heck out of you. And the reason is you're already kind of in the flesh to not be winning. And they're like, hey, how are you doing? Where have you been? What's up? And you're like, ah, I was afraid you were going to ask me those questions. You're like, well, you know what? Let's go to battle then. Let's go take this thing down ourselves. But here's the beautiful part. Joshua, of the 12 tribes, the one from which Jesus, I'm sorry, um, Judah, from which Jesus will come, she wants a blessing. She has land now from which they will be able to build a house and live. And he blesses her with living water. That's what a spring is. There's two different kinds of water. Living water is not a fancy Christian term. Living water is just running water. That's all it is. Now, <clears throat> to somebody who lives in the Middle East, that's really important. To be honest, in, pretty much, unless you live in a first world country, it's important everywhere. I mean, here we have running water. We can close it and open any time we turn a dial or flip up a switch. But in a lot of the world, the majority of the world, a living water is the difference between life and death. Still water is stagnant. It's pond water. It's nasty. It stinks. It's scummy. Running water tends to have this possibility that you're not going to get poisoned by it. You have a much better choice or a better uh, uh, case of that, odds of that. And she wants running water. She wants living water. But what I do like is that he could have just went, okay, well, there's a little spring. And what he's doing now, if you, you realize, is he has to enlarge her territory to give her this. Because if he already gave her the land and it had springs on it, why would she be asking? So what she says is, could you bless me and just give me a little bit more, something that will actually give me some living water. And this guy, from which, by the way, the tribe from which Jesus himself will come, doesn't just give her living water in the high ground. But he gives her living water in the low ground, too. Why is that so important? Because for me, as a Christian, walking in this world around us, there are times when things are going really well. And I can see it and I feel the presence of the Lord. I don't have to feel Him to know He's there. But just the same, there are times where you're just like, oh God, you're just so in control. I just love you. And I love being in your presence. I love enjoying you. And I'm just praising you and I'm enjoying you. And it's the high time. And I can just sense, man, the Holy Spirit's in control. Man, the presence of God is here. But in those low times, in those valleys, those moments when I feel dry and things seem darker in my own life, though they're not darker, I'm just not looking the way I should. 
Those moments when things are much more of a struggle and the battle seems to be bigger and raging. Well, those are the moments where people tend to go more of a, God, where are you now kind of thing. And what I love is, is that this man says, you know what, I'll give you the running water in both places. It's interesting because, you know, that term living water, Jesus really only uses twice in Scripture. Are you aware of that? In the Gospels, when you look for the term living water, here are the two times, by the way, both in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 7, verse 38, Jesus speaks and he's at the last great day of the feast. The feast is the Feast of Tabernacles, where the people fast from water and they do what's called a libation offering, which is where the priest takes some water from the valley of the Hinnom Spring, or um, Gihon Spring, and he goes and they pour it over the sacrifice and it flows down all at their feet. Now, these are all thirsty people at this moment. It's hot outside, it's dry outside, and the water's flowing. And they're singing, And they're singing, you know, With joy I will draw water from the well of salvation. And it's then that Jesus stands up. And in John 7.38, he says, Whoever is thirsty, let him come to me. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And I would say that that is one of the high places. They're there up on the hill of God. They're there in Jerusalem. And the people are up. <coughs> Jesus is declaring this at the southern steps as the water is flowing down. And he's like, hey, even in those high points when you're thirsty, man, I, can t- I will turn you into more than just full. I will make you a fountain. But in John chapter 4, the other time, there's a woman at a well. And this woman had had seven husbands and she no longer, the guy she's living with now, she's not married to. She's clearly a bit of an outcast. And if she's a bit of an outcast, I would say she's in the low point in life. And yet it's to her. He says, give me a, a drink of water. And she says, what? Okay, you're a Jew. Why are you talking to me? And he says, well, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me. I'd be giving you living water. You're going to have to draw from this stagnant water. I'd give you living water. And she says, who, who are you? And he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. And I love the fact that any time that we turn to the Lord and say, God, I just feel dry, <clears throat> we're willing to lay our whole life down before him and believe in him, as Jesus said. He promises living water. In the high places, if you will, the upper springs and the lower springs. Now, <clears throat> God rolls off our list. Here we go. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Judah according to their families. Are you ready? Yeah, good. That was overwhelming. 112 cities he's going to list here. Yep, I thought you were ready. Cities of the tribe of the children of Judah from the border of Edom in the south were Kabziel, Eder, Yagur, Kina, Demona, Adada. Adada, by the way, means festival. Kadesh, Chatzor, Ithran. Zif, Telem, Bealot, which means mistresses. There's that term again. Hatzor, Hadata, Kiriot, Hezron, which is Hazor. Amam. Amam means your mama, by the way. It's close, right? Amam, or their mother. It's plural. Shima, Molada, Hatzadgada, Hezmon, Bethpelet. Hatzashual, which means jackal village. Who wants to live there? Beersheba. Bizyosya, which means the contempt of, the, of God. Baala, which means mistress. Lijim, or Lijim, which means ruins. 
like Liam. Ezem, which means bone. Eltulad. Chesil. Chonama. Ziklag. Very important place because, of course, that's where David is going to repent, give his life back to the living God. And then one of my favorites, Mad Manna. You thought Mad Max was original? It's right here. And Mad Manna, by the way, means dunghill. It's Mad Manna and then San Santa, which means palm branch. Lebaot, Shechim, Ain. Aren't you glad I'm reading this and not you? All the cities were 29 in their villages. And in the lowland, Eshtaol, Zorah, Asna, Zunoa, and Ganim, Tapua. You'll see Tapua a lot. Tapua means apple, by the way, or apple city. Enam, Yarmut, Adulam, Soho, which means bushy, Azekha, Sheraim, Adetaim, Gedara, and Gedarataim, which means two well. Fourteen cities and their villages. Zinan, Hadasha, Migdalgad, Deleon, which means gourd, like, you know, like, you know, certain kinds of squash and so forth. Mizpa, Yaksiel, Lachish, Bozkat, Eglon, and one of my favorites, Kabon. Kabon means literally the builder. So if your name happened to be Bob Kabon, you would be literally Bob the Builder. Just thought you might want to know that. All right, uh, moving on. Lafmas and Kidlish, Kedarot, Beth Dagon, Naamah, and Makeda, which means a place of shepherds, 16 cities of their villages. Libna, Iter, Ashan, excuse me, Jibda, Ashna, Leziv, Kaila, another place David will flee to. Achziv, and by the way, they'll betray him. Amerashah, that's sort of a spoiler, a warning. Nine cities and their villages. Ekron, which means torn up by the roots, with its towns and villages. Ekron and the sea lay near Ashdod and their villages. Ashdod and its towns near Gaza, its town and villages, as far as the brook of Egypt and the great sea with its coastline. And the mountain country, Shamir, Yakir, Shukoder's bushy again. Dana, Dana means you judged. Uh, Kirasana, there's the city of the book, which is Devir. Anav, Eshtemot, which literally, and this is an interesting one, it means one of two things. It means, I will make myself heard, and I will cause my own ruin. I think it's interesting that that word means both. Boy, you're going to hear me, but I'm going to destroy myself. All right, Anim, you can draw what you want from that. Goshen, Holan, and Gilo. They were like, someone's like, so what should we name this city? And he's like, Holan. Okay, that's what we'll call it. Right, anyway, <coughs> Holan actually means sandy. Eleven cities and their villages. Arav, by the way, interesting, like Arab, means ambush. Although Arava means desert. Uh, Duma, which means silence. Eshe'en, Yanum, which means asleep. Hopefully something you guys are not doing at the moment yet. Bethapua, maybe there's that apple house. Uh, Afika, uh, Humta. Like Humpta, and the next place you'd expect to be called Dumpta, but it's not. Humpta actually means the place of lizards. So there you go. You get that city. Akirat Arba, which is Hebron, and Zior, which means smallness. Nine cities in their villages. Ma'on, Carmel, which means garden-like. Zif, Utah, Yezreel, Yochdeim, Zonal, Kain, Gibeah, Timna, like, isn't that a character in Lion King? 
It means portion, by the way, ten cities in the villages. And we're almost there. Halhul, which means trembling. Bedzur, house on the rock. Gidor, Marat, barrenness. Bethenot, house of afflictions. And El Tekom, which means God is straight. Six cities with their villages. Kirtbaal, which is Kirith Yerim. And Raba. Raba means great. To this day, Raba <coughs> means like big or a lot. For instance, if you were to say, here's a quick, uh, quick Hebrew lesson today. If somebody gives you something, you could say, Toda. Like, Tada, but with a toad. Toda means thank you. But if you say thank you very much, you say, Toda Raba. And there's a Raba, same term here. Thanks. It's like a lot or very much. Two cities with their villages. In the wilderness, Bederaba, which means the desert house. Nidin Sekharach, which means thicket, by the way. Or, yeah, or literally, Sekhacha. Yeah, I had to be careful how I said that. Nibshan, the city of salt, and Gedi, six villages, or six cities with their villages. 112 different cities all together there for Judah. But then it says in verse 63, a coming attraction, a little bit of a spoiler of the book of Judges. But as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the city of Judah could not, or the children of Judah could not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwelled with the children of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Notice they could not. Well, God said he was going to give them victory everywhere. Why couldn't they? Might I say this? What God is doing with the children of Judah is fantastic. He is showing us something you seldom see in this world around us. And that is, you give all the effort you have until it's not enough. Could you imagine? Here's the idea. Have you ever been to a place where you really know how far your strength will go? The only way that you will know how far your strength will go is if you go beyond it. So you get to the place where your strength isn't enough. Isn't that true? The only way you'll know how far your mind will get you as if you go to the place where your mind won't get you out of it anymore. And the Lord will always bring you to places where it's beyond your strength, beyond your cute, beyond your charm, beyond your wit, beyond your whatever, beyond your strength, so that you have to rely on Him. But what He does show us with Judah, which we will not, I mean, it's the complete, if you will, it's contrasting these other seven tribes. Uh, these guys were going to go for it until they just couldn't anymore. These guys had fight in them. And they're like, wow, well, okay, these guys, these guys aren't going to go down easy. Well, let's regroup, let's build, let's get stronger, and let's take them back on. But notice, it's not that they would not, it's that they could not. Do you see that? So sometime in your life, for instance, there'll be places where you're in a battle, and you're like, how come I'm not done with this? I've been a Christian three weeks. How am I still sinning? And you realize that the Lord will continue to grow you, and as He continues to grow you, He continues to give you victory. Me too, by the way. I've been walking with God in one way or another since 1984. Now, I don't know if any of you were even born then, as I look around the room. And, <coughs> oh yeah, thanks, Sammy. Uh, and I just realize that I'm still watching God show victory in my life in areas. I think that that's beautiful. I mean, and that means there are areas of my life, if you think about it, that I've been dealing with for over 30 years. And yet, in all of that, God continues to show victory. And the cool part about it is, there was a time I could have said, man, unless God do it right now, there's no possible way I'm going to win this. And then the Lord says, don't worry, we're going to win other battles. I have a whole list here. I have you as my to-do list. And in that, there's certain things I'm going to give you victory now, and there's certain things I'm going to give you victory tomorrow. 
And I'll always be able to tell you for the rest of my life how God continues to give victory because of what he's doing in my life today. And there you go. There's the cool part about it. All right. Are you ready to move on to the next chapter? Yay! Okay, here we go. Somebody had to do it. Chapter 16. Now remember, Joseph has two children, Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh was the tribe that was half, and half of it's over on the east side. Well, the lot fell to the children of Joseph by the Jordan, by Jericho, to the waters of Jericho on the east, to the wilderness that goes up to Jericho. Now, again, if you take a look at this, can you guys find where um, Ephraim and Manasseh are? Take a look at this with me. Do you see where Manasseh is? Like, this is the river. Do you see how Manasseh is here and Manasseh is here as well? That is, again, oh, thank you. That's even better yet. Thanks, Bruno. So, this is the tribe. Remember, this is the river right here. And so this was the tribe that didn't want to cross over. This is the land they got. And again, this is the area that Judah got. Simeon hasn't been added yet. So they get all of this. And then when they got all of this, then what happened is the only other people that come to claim the land are these two guys, the sons of Joseph. Now, remember, this is half of this. Do you see how big Menashe is? Think of all this land that they got because they showed up to get it. There's the crazy part. This isn't an issue of losing a battle. This is an issue of God wanting to give you something and you not wanting to show up to get it. There's the sad part. But these guys show up. So it says that the lot fell to Joseph from the Jordan by Jericho to the waters of Jericho on the east to the wilderness that goes up from Jericho to the mountains of Bethel. Then they went out from Bethel to Luz, passed along the border of the Archites to Atroth, and went down westward to the boundary of the Yephletites, which means let him escape, by the way. I don't know. How, would you want to live in a town that means let him escape? As far as the boundary of the lower Beth Huram, which means the house of hollowness, hollow is in empty, to Gezer, and it ended at the sea. So the children of Joseph, Menashe and Ephraim, took their inheritance. Now, the border of Ephraim, according to the families, was thus. The border of their inheritance on the east side was Atroth, Adarg, and as far as the upper Beth Choram. And the border went out then toward the sea of the north side of Mechmetat, hiding place. Then the border went out around eastward to Ta'anach Shiloh, which means to approach to rest. And it passed by on the east to Yanoha, which means he rests. Then it went down from Yanoha to Atarot, which means crowns in Na'ara, which means maiden, reached to Jericho and came out at the Jordan the border west of Tapua. Remember what Tapua meant? It really amazed me. It means apple or apple seed. Westward by the brook Kana, and it ended at the sea. And this was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Ephraim, according to their families. The separate cities for the children of Ephraim were among the inheritance of the children of Manasseh, all the cities with their villages. Look at verse 10 now. And they did not drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites, to this day, and have become forced laborers. Did you notice now, now it's not an issue of ability? Did you see that? It doesn't say they could not, but they did not. They were supposed to, but they didn't. And we start to see this downward spiral. You go somewhere, you start to see some form of defeat, and now you just stop trying. Well, that's the end of that chapter, by the way, chapter 17. There was also the lot for the tribe of Menashe. He was the firstborn of Joseph, namely of Machir. By the way, the, the boy's name means sold. Firstborn of Menashe, the father of Gilead, 
because he was a man of war, therefore he was given places that were of great battle, like Gilead, which means rocky region, and Baashan, which means fruitful. And there was a lot of the, there was a lot for the rest of the children of Manasseh, according to their families, the children of Abiezer, the children of Halech, the children of Asriel, and the children of Shechem, the children of Hefer. Hefer, by the way, means a well. There are two basic words in the Hebrew for well, Hefer and beer. True story. And the children of Shemidah, these were the male children of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, according to their families. But Zelophehad, which means firstborn, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, had no sons but only daughters. And these were the names of his daughters. And he, like, get this, ready? He's got five daughters. And he names the first one Mala. Could you say Mala? Mala means sickly or diseased. Now, even if your child was born that way, would you name him that? Would you say, oh, let's call you sickly? Well, unfortunately, that's the case here. But then he goes to the next one. So, we have, excuse me, (coughs) we have Mala, we have Noah, like rest or motion, Hogla, which means partridge, and Milka. And this is only funny because, remember, he's the son of Heifer, so the son of the granddaughter of Heifer is named Milka. So you have Milka and Heifer. Milka Heifer. Anyways, uh, her name is Queen and Terza, which means honorable or favorable. And they came before Eleazar, the priest, before Joshua, the son of Nun, and before the rulers, saying, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our brothers. Therefore, according to the commandment of the Lord, he gave us an inheritance among their father's brothers. Ten shares fell to Manasseh, besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which are on the other side of the Jordan. Because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance among the sons, and the rest of Manasseh's sons had the land of Gilead. Now, please don't miss this, ladies. Talking to the girls in the house for a moment, because in Numbers chapters 26 and 27, this is where this plays out. Now, traditionally, here's the idea. A guy has some sons. As he has some sons, he gives the land to his sons. That makes sense. Then... Those guys have kids, they give them to their sons. What happens to the daughters? Well, the daughters wind up marrying somebody else's family, so they get the land of that family. Basically, the moment a daughter's born in your house, you assume she's on loan. That's kind of the idea. I mean, sooner or later, both of my daughters, more than likely, although it's going to take pretty special guys for both of them, they're going to wind up carrying somebody else's last, somebody else's surname. They'll be propagating somebody else's family. My 12-year-old would just cringe to think that I'm saying this right now. But what happens in a case like this? Zelophehad, by the way, although his name means firstborn, he basically only had girls. He's got five of them. So what happens with him when he dies? Where does the land go? Because there's no sons to give it to. Ladies, I don't know if you realize how huge this is. Do you know to this day, if you're in Saudi Arabia and you start a conversation with anyone other than your father or your brother, you could be arrested for it. In Saudi Arabia, it's considered an improprietous for a woman to speak at all under such circumstances unless it's to another woman and they do it in another room. There was a woman, I don't know if you recognize this or read this as of recent, who was arrested and even beaten. I mean, there's an irony to it because she had to stand and testify before men because she stood and talked to men. Figure that one out. Anyways, but it was because her cousin came to drop off groceries because her son or whatever couldn't do it for the moment. And as he dropped off groceries, she thanked him. 
And that's today, 2015. In those days, what do you think the possibility of a girl owning land is? But what Moses said, he sought the Lord and he said, you know what the deal is? Hey, look at you girls. You're right. And they're like, what they're concerned of is, well, if we marry someone else that's going to go to the other tribes, how is that going to work out? And they were planning ahead. So he says, what you need to do is you just need to marry within your tribe. You need to marry kind of stay within that kind of not. You're not marrying your brother. You know, that's clear. But you go beyond that and you want I want you to marry within that. But that land is yours. God gave the land to women. Now, that shouldn't surprise us today, but back then, this, I mean, we are talking about 3,400 years ago, 3,300 years ago. This is a really big deal. But God knows what he did, because he cares, and he loves women. He's not, this is not a God who's enslaving women. This is a God who cares about them. So with that in mind, the women get it, but so they all, by the way, wind up marrying their cousins, for what it's worth. So there you go. Now, Verse 7, so the territory of that Menashe was from Asher to Mikmetah that lies in Shechem. And the border went south to the inhabitants of Entapua. Remember that means, that literally means apple fountain. Menashe had the land of Tapua, apple city, but Tapua was the border of Menashe, belonged to the children of Ephraim. And the border descended to the brook Canaan, southward to the brook. These were the cities of Ephraim and are among the cities of Menashe. The border of Menashe was the north side of the brook and it ended at the sea. Southward it was Ephraim's, northward it was Manasseh's. And the sea was the border. Manasseh's territory was adjoining Asher on the north and Issachar on the east. And in Issachar and in Asher, Manasseh had Bet-Sha'an. To this day, by the way, important place, David's predecessor, Saul, his body will be nailed to the doors of it. Well, we'll talk about that some other time when we get there. And the sea was its border. Manasseh's territory was adjoining Asher on the north and Issachar on the east. And in Issachar and in Asher, they had, again, had Bet-Sha'an. And its towns, Ibrahim, which literally means eats the people up. And its towns, its inhabitants of Dor. The towns of the inhabitants of Endor. And its towns, the inhabitants of Ta'anach, which again means sandy. Another term that means sandy. And its towns, the inhabitants of Megiddo. And its town, three hilly regions. Yet, now look at what it says. Here's our third of our three statements about this. Yet the children of Menasha could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities. But the Canaanites were determined to live in the land. And it happened when the children of Israel grew strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not utterly drive them out. Did you see that they could not, but then when they could, they did not? Can I say that when you're young, I mean, I know this, it's like, it's like when you're married, you want everything to be perfect. I don't blame you. I think that that's fantastic. But all of a sudden you start to realize, okay, these are areas that we need to work on in our marriage, and the same thing as we walk with the Lord. These are areas that still need to be changed. My personality, my foolish mouth, Whatever those things are. And you get those things. You're like, God, I lay them before you. And you get to that point where you're like, I feel like I really blew it. I feel like I did something really stupid. And the good news is, is that though you may have felt like you had some kind of failure, here's the good news. That now when he makes you stronger, will you overcome? Because as God builds your strength, the beauty in that is now you're able to say, you know what? I'm not elegant. If I can, I will. There's the point. So I want to take it to battle again. I'm going to stand and I want to walk right with God. But we don't see that here with Menasha, Which is interesting because Menasha means makes me forget. And I forget about the power of God. I forget how good He is. And what I do instead is I go, oh, I lost this battle the last time. I guess I'll always lose it. And God's like, no, you won't. It tells us in the book of Proverbs that a righteous man may fall seven times, but he will rise again. 
but a foolish man will fall by calamity. And the idea is that the difference between a righteous person and an unrighteous person isn't the absence of falling. The difference is which one gets up. Now, I'm not encouraging you to fall. I'm just telling you if you have, let's get back up. So then the children of Joseph spoke to Joshua. Now, <coughs> this is Ephraim and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Why have you given us only one lot and one share to inherit? Since we're a great people, inasmuch as the Lord's blessed us until now. Joshua answered them, Well, if you're such a great people, well, then go up to the forest country and clear a place for yourself there in the land of the Perizzites and of the giants, since the mountains of Ephraim are too confining for you. But the children of Joseph said, Well, the mountain country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who dwell in the land of the valley of chariots of iron, both those that are in Bethshaan and its towns and those that are in the valley of Jezreel. And Joshua spoke to the house of, of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, Hey, you're a great people and have great power. And you shall have only one lot. But the mountain country shall be yours. Although it's wooded, you should cut it down. And its farthest extent shall be yours. And you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of, and are strong. Now here's the point. These guys are all toting themselves like they're big and buff. And they're like, hey, 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 how come you only gave me this property? And they're trying to act all tough about it. He goes, well, hey, tough guy, if you're so tough, go ahead and take the rest of the land that is rightly yours. And this is really interesting because you see this a lot. What you see is someone that is actually gifted in an area, but they really think they should be somewhere else. And when you start to look at the fruit, the fruit's really suspicious because it really doesn't prosper in there. But they're like, I just feel called to that. I just have a real heart for that. You don't understand. This is what my heart thrives for. But when you see them in it, they don't prosper and the people with them don't prosper. And you watch them and it's like, well, that's my land, man. And they're like, no, no, no. Why don't you actually invest in the land you do have, the place where God has put you? You're like, yeah, but there's battles there. And you're like, yeah, there are battles. Well, they seem bigger and tougher there. Yeah, but my God's still bigger. <clears throat> you get to see the power of God there. And you're like, yeah, but I like this. Why don't you just kick someone else out and let me do their thing? And you're like, no, because that's not your job. And the great thing is when you love God, you'll see this. But you know what? Even godly people have this problem. Look at Paul in the New Testament. That guy had such a heart for the Jews. But every time he did, he stirred up all kinds of trouble. But then it just seemed like he walked outside and sneezed that a bunch of Gentiles got saved. And the whole point of it is, is that God says, I'm calling you there. Look, at, you can go there too. God will allow you to do that. But he goes, this is where I'm calling you and I want you there. But the problem is, is that <coughs> excuse me, for Paul to minister to the Gentiles, he had to rely on the power of God. Because he really wasn't equipped the same way. Oh, he was fully mentally equipped. Educationally, he was equipped to fight when it came to the Jews. He was trained to argue there. But to go to the Gentile, he had to trust God for everything. And God goes, why do you think I want you there? And look at the only reason I say that is, is that we stay in the Lord and we're like, hey, I think I should have more of this, but every time you set your hands, it's not going anywhere. Well, there's a purpose for that. Well, then... Let your hand be set where God would set you. And you're like, but if there's a battle there, well, then let God fight that battle. And you're like, but there are iron chariots. Well, good. Well, then you could be the one who could tell me how God takes down iron chariots. Because he does that. Now, the rest of this I'm going to read fairly quick. Because remember how now we have, that's our two and a half tribes. That's Judah 
and that's the two sons of Joseph. That's Ephraim and the half-tribe of Manasseh. There's our two and a half tribes that showed up to get the land. But notice in chapter 18, and we'll read through this quickly now, the whole generation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. Important to note, this is a really important thing you can read past because there's so many lists. But please understand, up to this point, the camp settled at Gilgal. That's where they've been. And now they're moving and setting up the tabernacle in Shiloh. And by the way, which means rest. And it will be there, in essence, until basically David sets up the temple or sets up basically things in Jerusalem and then his son will build the temple. So basically, this is where people go to seek God, for the most part, until David. There you go. So this is a really important thing. But look in verse 2, it says, But there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not yet received their inheritance. Hey, the land is yours. Go get it. In James 4.17 it says, To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it's a sin. We always think about sin as just, you weren't supposed to do it, but you did it. That was wrong, and you did it. But James makes clear, that's only half the sins. The other half of the sins is when you're supposed to do something, and you don't. That's another sin altogether. The first is the sin of commission. The second is the sin of omission. And he says they're both sins. He goes, look, there is a sin of doing the wrong thing, and there is a sin of doing nothing when he tells you to do something. Well, here it goes. So this is what Joshua says to those people. Then Joshua said to the children of Israel, How long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord God your fathers has given you? Pick out from among you three men from each tribe, and I'll send them, and they shall rise and go through the land, survey it according to their inheritance, and come back to me. And they shall divide it into seven parts. Judah shall remain in the territory of the south, and the house of Joseph shall remain in the territory of the north. We've already given Judah and Joseph's boys their land. So I want you to go and look at the rest of the land and let's break it up. We'll do it by lot. You shall therefore survey the land into seven parts. Bring this survey here to me and I'll cast lots for you before the Lord your, our God. The Levites, though, have no part among you for the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they receive their inheritance beyond the Jordan on the east. Remember, that's the two and a half tribes that got the stuff on the east, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. Then the men arose to go away and Joshua charged those who went to survey the land, saying, Go, walk through the land, survey it, and come back to me, that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went, passed through the land, wrote a survey in a book in seven parts by cities, and they came to Joshua at the camp of Shiloh. And then Joseph, I'm sorry, and then Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord, and there Joshua divided the land to the children of Israel according to their divisions. And here it is. Verse 11, basically to 28, is the area that is given to the tribe of Benjamin. You can see that there up on the map. And I'm going to do this for the sake of time. I will trust you will read through this, but it is important to recognize in the midst of that Benjamin, look at verse 28. Zelah, Eleph, and Jebus, which is Jerusalem. That Remember, the square part of the paintbrush belongs to Benjamin. And I remind you, before David took the throne, the king before him, Saul, was a Benjamite. Chapter 19, verse 1, it's the lot came to Simeon. He's the second lot. This is the tribe of the children of Simeon, according to their families, of which was Bathsheba, Ziklag, again, where David would run ultimately. And that's verses 1 through 9. 
Verse 10 through 16, the children of Zebulun. And he walks through their areas, which included, by the way, Bethlehem, 12 cities and villages. 17 to 23, then comes our fourth, that's Issachar, which includes Beshemesh and Yezreel Valley. 24 to 31 is the children of Asher, which includes Mount Carmel. Verse 32 to 39 are the children of Naphtali, which is really important because you'll notice in verse 35, Kinevet, and Kinevet, by the way, is the Sea of Galilee, that area. And by the way, look at verse 38. This one will be important for some of you. There is Iron and Migdal. Migdal, by the way, if you're from Migdal, you would be a Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was from Migdal. That wasn't her surname. Remember, you were identified usually by what son you were, or daughter you were of what family, or you were identified by what place. She was Mary of Migdal. But what if you were a man from the people before that, the tribe or the, the place right before that? You would be Iron Man. It's right there, verse 38. Just thought you might want to know that. Al-Haram Bethanat and Bechemesh. Verse 40 then, the, lot, the seventh of those seven lots went to Dan. Dan, by the way, is going to be our big concern. Not Dan, the guy we know, because we just love him and we actually have a lot of confidence in the guy, in the Lord. But this particular tribe is the trouble tribe. Now, you can see, by the way, they get the short end of the stick in this sense. Now, by the way, I want to make clear, if you look at this, and go to the one that's a little bit more simple so they can see kind of where Dan is. Can you kind of see how they kind of just squished Dan and Benjamin in there? And the reason they kind of squished them in there, by the way, was because they were at the end of the lots. They wouldn't have had this problem had they been fighting and then showed up to get the land. But now they're like, well, okay, I'll just take whatever you have left over. Wait, why do you want leftovers when you can get the main course? And what Dan will do ultimately is they'll get this land, and there's some really good land for Dan, by the way, in this, including part of the coast, just by the way, the area of Tel Aviv today, but around that area. But they didn't like it. So what they wound up doing is they wound up moving to the far north, killing a bunch of people, and then taking land far north of it. And by the way, Dan will be the land of idolatry. They will always be the people. They'll be so messed up. But God will talk when he talks about from north to south. He'll say from the land of Dan to Beersheba. Dan because it's the farthest north. Beersheba because it's the farthest south. Now, it's important to recognize that Dan will be one of the first tribes to drop then. When the kingdom divides after Solomon, one of the golden calves is placed in Dan. But when you get to the book of Revelation and the 12 tribes are all coming in, right, the 144,000, the tribe of Dan isn't mentioned. That's a little concerning. That's why some people actually believe, but I can't tell you it's true, that the Antichrist will come from that tribe. I don't know if that's true, but just the same. My favorite part, though, was when the International Church of God, when it was a cult, now I don't know what it is today, they were saying clearly we're one of the tribes because we're Danish. And we're part of the 144,000 because we're Danish. And if we're Danish, we're from the tribe of Dan. Well, all they need to do is read the book of Revelation because Dan's not one of the 12 tribes. There's your problem. So here's the deal. 40 to 51, he divides the rest of the land then to Dan. They get a handful of tribes, by the way. And it says, by the way, in verse 47, the border of the tribe of Dan went beyond these because the children of Dan went to fight against Lashem. They took it and struck it with the edge of the sword, took possession of it and dwelt in it. Called it Lashem. Called it, by the way, Dan. Because they named it after Dan their father, which, by the way, means judge. 
This is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Dan, according to their families, their cities and villages. I know Dan calls himself Dan. I like to call him Daniel. And the only difference is there's a difference between judge and God's the judge. Because I'm not really happy about judges. Uh, in the book I like. But in regards to people as judges, because they're real faulty. But I like that God is our judge. So they, when he ended up making the well, last three verses, when they made an end of dividing the land as an inheritance according to their borders, the children of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. Remember, he's the leader. According to the word of the Lord, they gave him the city which he asked for, Timnaserah, and the mountains of Ephraim, because I remind you, he's from the tribe of Ephraim. And he built a city and dwelt in it. And these are the inheritances which Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel divided as an inheritance by lot in Shiloh. I may remember that's where the tabernacle is. <coughs> Excuse me. Before the Lord. At the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So they made an end of dividing the country. Now, we're bringing this to close. And I know that it's probably, for some of you, you might not be as accustomed to this, but here we are. We've just gone through, if you think about it, five chapters of this book, and they're all with a similar theme, so it made sense to do it in a single sitting. Though you all look like I've just punched you in the face. Here's the simple of it. God had a land that he wanted to give. It was a place of fruitfulness, and it was a place of plenty. It would be a place like walking in the fullness of God's love with you. And he has that for every one of us. It starts, by the way, by accepting the gift of Jesus Christ who died on the cross because without it, we still carry our own sin. So there we are, carrying it ourselves, trying to say to God, am I good enough? But God demands perfection. You'd say that's unfair. Why? God has a right to make the rules. He made it. But here's the good news. God gives you a chance. He sent his son, died on the cross, who lived a perfect life, and as he died on the cross, he paid your price and mine. He took the punishment I deserve and you deserve, and he paid it then. Pretty simple. And as he died there, the price was paid. How do I know that? Because as Scripture promised, he not only died and was buried, but as Scripture promised, he rose again on the third day. It was the proof that it was accepted. And that perfection that what Jesus was and is, is offered to you if you accept the gift of Jesus Christ. If you accept that gift, God takes your guilt, and he already placed it on the cross, but now basically you cash in on that. And the innocence of Jesus is now placed upon you. So when the Father looks, he sees Jesus living inside of you, so he sees you as perfect. But there's more to that. What that does is it gives you a right standing before God. But then you have the rest of this life to live. What is it like to live that life now as a Christian? Well, he has this life of fruitfulness and abundant life like Jesus promised in John 10.10. The problem is, how do I live that life? Well, there will be battles to be fought there. And there will be ground, and here's the problem... With all of the battles to be fought, there's discomfort in a battle or it wouldn't be a battle. But with every battle we fight, there is ground to be gained, victory to be achieved, and a whole new life to live in fruitfulness. So the battles you face now as a Christian are battles to grow, to become fruitful, to see the victory and power of God. And what we see here is that there will be those who will say, this is enough. And they'll stay on the weak side. It's not exactly what God wanted for them, or it's not what God, God's best is for them, but it's still close enough. So they feel like they're still a part of it. And there'll be people like that. They'll be on the fringe. They'll show up every once in a while. They'll sing a couple songs with us. They'll have a couple you know, biscuits in the end, and they'll feel like they've done their duty. Is that what you want? 
Or is that what you want as a Christian? Basically, like, well, I probably won't go to hell. We're good with that. But then there's more than that, because then if you're going to cross over, you know there are more battles to fight. And here's the problem. Even if you want to stay on the east of the Jordan, there's still going to be battles to fight. And this is what I've learned. The difference between like American football or rugby and life is that you get tackled on the bench in real life. You can't just sit on the bench and go, OK, well, you can't touch me now. This is the safety zone. That doesn't work here. In real life, you're going to get hit whether you like it or not. Whether you're on the field or not, you're going to get work. So you might as well be doing something worth it. So, there are those that are like, well, then let's go take the land. If God has more for than this, if there's any part of you as a Christian that says, is there more than this, then there should be a fight attached to that. And the fight that's attached to that says, I want more. I want that abundant life that God has for me. And if that means that there are battles to be fought, God, if you're going to give me victory, then let's fight those battles. Let's see that victory. Let's cross the Jordan and let's see it happen. But when you get over there and you see that, what you'll find is the people that crossed over with you, some of them are going to be with you and say, yes, let's take the land. And occasionally, occasionally, amidst two million people, God highlights one old guy. Did you notice that? Well, if there were two million people calling themselves Christians and one old guy that says they're still fighting me, let that be me. Now, I'm not, now I'm not old yet, but I'm sure feeling it tonight. But I want to be there saying, hey, if, I'm, if the Lord tarries and I make it to 85, I pray you see a guy even more rabid for Christ then than you do now. And I'm not even well on my way to 85, so don't even get any ideas. But among those people, there's going to be a small group of people too that are really just going to come and cross over a little bit and not really claim anything. Like, yeah, I know this stuff. I can argue this stuff. I know my doctor and I know that stuff. But they're not really like, let's really go do something. They won't even show up when the bugle's blown to claim it. And then they'll complain in their life because they don't like where their place in life is. But they're not even willing to fight for it. Can you really complain about something if you're not willing to do something about it? That's what Joshua said to the people, right? How long are you going to neglect this? How long are you just going to wait until you think someone's just going to hand this to you? Get up and start walking the land and tell me what you're going to do about getting it. And can I just say, as we go to prayer now, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'll give you a chance to say yes. If you have accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, then let's take the step beyond it and say, I want the best. I want to be one of those people charging. I want to be one of those people. When we retire this jersey, there's no reviving it. And I'll say, man, we took the land. You pray with me. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the honor of being saying yes, for the honor to say yes another night to you. Thank you, Lord, for in these chapters, <coughs> there is so much to learn. But even through our first time through in it, Lord, we recognize you have a specific place for every person. And there are those, Lord, I think about how much land Judah got, and I just see them quick to the battle. Lord, make us people quick to the battle, not quick to argue. There are people like that. Not quick to protest. Well, there are people like that. But quick to preach the gospel. Quick to declare the name of Jesus. Quick to be honest and true that you, Jesus, save sinners like us. <clears throat> so, Lord, 
I pray right now that in this room, You inspire us. Put that fight in us, Lord, where it belongs. We would say, yes, God. I want more. I want more of You. I want more of what You have for me. I want to walk in such a way that I am amazed at the victories You wrought in my life. Lord, make us people who aren't willing to just kind of look around and say, well, everybody else seems like they're kind of walking, but I know I can run. I think I'll just walk with them. Give us that Fight within us, Lord, to want to do our very best, to live our very best, to live full on, full out, sold out for You. Because I know it's a lot harder to steer into sin when I'm charging full on for You. And so, Lord, with that, whatever battles there are in our life, even if we thought that there was a time where they were greater than us, well, they may be greater than us, but they're never greater than You. Lord, make it so that we would always Take that battle. Take to the battle when you put it before us. And say, Lord, lead us into victory in every one of them. And I trust you in this. And if tonight you're not sure if you've said yes to Jesus' gift, I'm going to pray a prayer. I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to say yes. It's that simple. The way we say yes is we say amen. And here it is. God in heaven, I'm a sinner. And because I'm a sinner, I stand before you as a sinner. Guilty. But I believe, just as Scripture says, you so love me, you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, to die on the cross for me so that you could pay my punishment. And when He paid it at the cross, it was paid for in full. And just like Scripture promised, He paid for it, was buried, and rose again on the third day, showing it was enough. And if all you're asking me to do is make a choice, oh, I make that choice and I say, yes, please, Jesus. If you're willing to pay my bill, I'd gladly say yes. But in doing so, I declare you as the Savior who died for me. And at your resurrection, I claim you the Lord of my life. Now, walk me forward and make me the kind of person that's a world changer for you. As I seek to walk with you, be my everything and have me, I pray. Jesus, in your name, if you agree. I ask you to say, Amen.